Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, Evolution. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Now today, as I said, we have Bruce Porter with us. And Bruce, Bruce, we're glad that you're with us. Glad to be here. He's a pastor of what? New Creation Christian Center in Aspen. Amen. And I tell you, it's a turned on church. I've been there a couple of times and his brother's got a good ministry. And also, Bruce, recently, I guess it was last year, wasn't it, that you uh, took one of these courses? Yeah, it was a week-long uh, seminar given by the Institute for Creation Research, uh, studying all of the evidences that would support or refute evolution and support uh, creationism from a scientific basis. And it was purely from a scientific basis. It was not a religious course at all. So anyway, we, we'll have to preface the things that we're saying by saying this, that neither one of us are, are scientists, but yet the data that we'll be using is published. It's in a form that anybody can get it. And uh, so even though we ourselves are not scientists, we are saying things that are factual. We'll be giving um, some uh, references to verify these things. And I believe that this really presents a very powerful case against evolution. So, Bruce, we'd like to start, and I'd like to say that Bruce is the one that's taken this course. I've listened to some tapes, I've read some materials, and I'll may be making some con comments on this, but we would like for Bruce uh, to be given the, the main body of this material on evolution. Thank you, Andy. The first thing I wanted to share is that I am not a scientist by uh, education. I'm a minister. However, the information that we want to share with you today is available to any layman and is in published form. And I think that it's important for us as believers, and really even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that you know and be aware of some of the information that is available to you on this subject. I don't think any thinking person should allow themselves to just be brainwashed into a dogma or any belief without some valid uh, evidences for what they believe in. And as a Christian, I believe uh, in Jesus Christ, not on the basis of what I think or feel with my emotions, but from what I see as evidence. And as we approach this, the, the subject of evolution, we have to first consider what is the evolutionary standpoint? What are they basically saying? Uh, the idea is basically put forth that order has come out of chaos, that somehow a disordered universe, a universe without order, without design, or a designer, somehow through naturalistic, mechanistic processes, formed itself into a highly organized, highly ordered universe with uh, tremendous complexity, and that the, the universe, uh, and uh, more particularly speaking, our, our Earth, our planet that we live on, uh, came forth not as the uh, uh, creative design of a benevolent creator, but simply as chance random processes. And this is the thing that we're going to kind of refute today. We're going to look at some of those ideas and just look at it from the standpoint of probability. Uh, Andy, I don't know what uh, particular subject you want to take up first. Uh, we might be able to touch on a few things. Well, I tell you, before, you, before we get into some of the technical things, I just would like to mention this, that I really feel, Bruce, that uh, the church has made a stand on their faith that uh, we believe in God as a creator, so therefore we disbelieve evolution. Mm -hmm. And that's good, personally, because our relationship with God must be based upon faith. But I really feel that uh, we haven't used all of the tools that are available to us to be able to witness to the lost people. So I would like to say this, that there may be a lot of people listening, and you're 
reaction to what we're teaching on may be, well, who cares? I believe that there's a God, and so I don't need to hear all these facts disproving evolution. But I really feel that it's time that the church wake up and realize that, that evolution is not a scientific fact. Matter of fact, science disproves evolution. And if we would just understand that, you could approach the intellectuals, the scientific-oriented people. You could present things that they recognize as fact from people that have PhDs, and we could turn them around, Bruce, and praise God, we could start uh, using that as a tool. So I'll agree that as believers, maybe we don't need to know all of this material for our own personal benefit, but in a continuing effort to be the witness that we're supposed to be and, and be all things to all people, then I think that this is something that we really need to be aware of. So I'd just like to emphasize that and drive that home to let people know that even if you believe in creationism, you need to know the facts so that you can use them to your advantage because they're there. That's right. We have a command from the Lord Jesus to preach the gospel, the good news, into all the earth. But we're facing today, more than any other time in man's history, a uh, society, almost worldwide, that's being brainwashed into a mechanistic, humanistic view, world view of how things came to be. And uh, our experience in uh, attempting to reach young people particularly and share with them the claims of Christ is that they have been not... Uh, neutralized in the sense of just being open-minded by the school systems, but they've been made hostile toward the claims of Christ and the belief that there even is a God uh, by j these very uh, evolutionary uh, presuppositions that they're being given. Uh, evolution is being taught as a fact uh, by the school systems. It's being taught as a fact by our higher uh, centers of learning. And we're being bombarded, I believe, daily uh, by movies and special programs and so on and so forth on television uh, that evolution is somehow a fact and the average layman can't understand any of the issues that uh, uh, you know support that but I'm here today today to tell you that anyone can study the evidence uh, any reasonably intelligent person can look at uh, the information that's available and make their own decision and I would challenge any person whether you are an evolutionist uh, an atheist or if you're a theistic evolutionist uh, that's listening to the program, listen to all the information. Don't make your uh, decision uh, of whether you believe or disbelieve evolution or believe in creationism just on hearsay. Look at all the information and then make an intelligent, informed decision. All right. Also, you uh, quoted to me a statement by Darwin where he said in one of his books about evolution. Have you got that handy? Yes, I do. Uh, Charles Darwin had some deep... <laughs> Uh, misgivings about his own uh, uh, theory. In fact, Charles Darwin, uh, who wrote, uh, was written or quoted by Francis Darwin uh, in The Life and Letters of Charles Darwin. This was uh, published by D. Appleton and Company in 1888, Volume 2, page 14. He said, There are so many valid and weighty arguments against my notions that you or anyone, if you wish to be, on the other side, will easily persuade yourself that I am wholly in error, and no doubt I am part in error, perhaps wholly so, though I cannot see the blindness of my ways. Now, that was Charles Darwin who said that. And Darwin later on, in uh, I can quote here from his book, Origin of Species, uh, number 811, page 156, he said, he said this, some of them, evolutionary difficulties, are so serious that to this day I can hardly reflect upon them without being in some degree staggered. 
And so Charles Darwin, who's been held up uh, by the scientific community as being the father of evolution, so to speak, in our country particularly, uh, had grave misgivings about his own theory. Also, I'd like to point this out, that I've got before me an issue of the September uh, Reader's Digest, and they have an article here in here on evolution, with modern-day evolutionists completely disproving Darwin. Now, they still hold to evolution, but they completely prove that Darwin was wrong. So anyway, the reason that we're bringing these things out is simply to point up that evolution is not a scientific fact. It is a theory. There are many fractions among the evolutionists where they conclusively prove that all of the other evolutionists are wrong. And one statement I've got here, that uh, this Dr. John Moore, he was speaking at a session of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and he said this, that the theory that man evolved from amoeba and sea slimes is an incredible religion, but not science. Hmm. And this was a scientist speaking. Hmm. And honestly, you know, as we begin and get into this, it takes more faith to believe in evolution, especially when we're going to look at some of the scientific fact, the laws of probability, and on and on. It's more faith to believe in that than it does to believe in a creator. That's right. And yet evolutionists will continually say, give me nothing but facts. You know, I don't want to base anything on faith. And they are not uh, honestly confronting the facts. That's right. The evidences against evolution is mounting almost daily as research continues, and uh, and yet those who hold to evolution hold to it tenaciously. Uh, it has become a religion, Andy. It's uh, it's become a belief system, a whole world view, and. Uh, Many times we find that uh, in, even in debates with uh, evolutionists that they will not confront the facts. They won't uh, deal so much with the uh, uh, the evidences or the scientific claims, uh, but they go uh, in a personal attack against the creationist. And oftentimes we get accused of just trying to push uh, creationism from a biblical perspective on um, on uh, uh, the world when we're not trying to push a biblical perspective. We're really trying to get the scientific facts out. First of all, we need to establish, Andrew, that um, neither creationism nor evolution qualifies as a scientific theory. Uh, the reason being is that the uh, a scientific theory is uh, something that has to be uh, repeatable. It has to be a uh, an observable thing. No one was around when evolution took place. No one was uh, was observing the creation of the Earth that can tell us today what it looked like. And so, when we say theories, we need to be very careful when we're talking about uh, scientific theories. Evolution does not qualify as a scientific theory as such. And again, I want to say neither does creationism. The thing that we need to establish in our thinking about it is which uh, of these models, so to speak, uh, creationism or evolution, most closely fits the available, observable, scientific uh, facts that we have available to us today. The laws of physics, the laws of, uh, of uh, biology as we see them operating today. Which of these two most fits the data that we have available? First of all, I want to say today that uh, the idea of evolution starts, as far as uh, uh, the evolution of life, starts with the idea that life began uh, by chance random processes that uh, approximately 4.5 to 5 billion years ago, uh, the Earth in a primordial state, in a reducing atmosphere, uh, there was a primordial soup that um, 
all of the right uh, amino acids and uh, chemicals and so forth came together and by chance processes in just the right combination so that a lightning strike or some electrical charge uh, struck that uh, soup and life began. Now, of course, that is an incredibly uh, naive assumption considering that that cannot be produced. It can't happen because the electrical charges as we understand them today in the laws of physics would destroy any life that was available at that time. Um, we can approach this thing from the, from the uh, laws of probability. The simplest one-celled amoeba that we know anything about has approximately 1,500 uh, DNA bits or the order of magnitude, 1500 happens to be about the order of magnitude of, of uh, structure contained in the simplest large protein molecule. And so we can ask the question, and one scientist put it this way, uh, how much complexity would we have to have in, in, say for instance, a machine that could replicate or reduplicate itself? And they did some probability studies and they found that that machine uh, to be able to reach into bits, or pardon me, reach, reach into bins and pull out parts and put it on a second machine, that it would have to be on the order of 1,500 bits. That machine would have to be able to make 1,500 correct choices in sequence perfectly in order to create a second replicating machine. That's really a suggestive answer because 1,500 bits happens to be the same order of magnitude, as I said before, the amount of structure contained in the simplest uh, protein molecule. And so here we have this machine trying to replicate itself. It, it has a, a complexity of 1,500 bits. It's reaching into bins, and it's putting these parts on a second machine and reduplicating itself. Now, that is the classic uh, definition that we have of life today, that DNA within uh, the cells of a living being are able to replicate and duplicate itself into a second being. Well, according to these studies, and there's been other recent studies that, have, that looked at this problem, the number of these steps uh, required to build that first machine or the protein molecule, if you're talking biologically, uh, by chance is 1,500. The probability of that being achieved by chance processes is, and if you're a mathematician, this might interest you, is one-half to the 15th 1500th power, or 1 over 2 to the 1500th power, or 1 chance out of 2 to the 1500th power, uh, which number is equal to 10 to the 450th power. Now that number is almost beyond our comprehension. Uh, if you were to assume that a complete set of trials up to the point of failure, or 1500 in the event of success, in other words, if there were 1500 trials all perfect in their sequence to build a second machine, uh, and that that could be accomplished in a billionth of a second, even if we assume that there's 10 to the 80th systems, 80th power systems, attempting these trials. In other words, we got, we got 10 to the 80th power machines with 1,500 uh, bits of complexity or information within them to replicating, trying to build another machine just like themselves. And this can get really astronomical. But you think about this, 10 to the 80th power equals the total number of particles estimated to be in the universe. Mm. All right, so we're being very liberal about this. Now, what does a particle mean? You're talking about... We're talking about atoms. That it's estimated that there are 10 to the 80th power atoms in the universe. And in one person, mm -hmm. there would be billions. There would be billions. Billions of atoms. That's right. That's right. So 10 to the 80th power represents the total number of atoms in the universe or in the world? 10 to the 80th power would be the estimated total number of atoms in the entire universe. Oh, brother. The That's entire universe. Got out beside So we're being liberal here. <laughs> Praise the Lord. 
And if they keep trying for 30 billion years or 10 to the 18th power seconds, if all these machines, 10 to the 80th power machines, in other words, one machine for every atom in the universe, operating, uh, making these trials and so forth, uh, you know, making a complete trial every, 50, every billionth of a second, okay, and they went on for 30 billion years or 10 to the 18th power seconds, there could still be only the following number of attempts to achieve such a replicating molecule in all the universe in all time. In other words, if you had 10 to the 80th power systems, that's 10 to the 18th power times 10 to the 9th power, which equals 10 to the 107th power, this number is, con I mean, it's immensely smaller than the number of attempts, 10 to the 450th power, that would re be required uh, to be sure that one of them would work. Awesome. So, I mean, I'm throwing out a lot of numbers here, and I know that that would boggle the minds of a lot of people, but if there was a scientist listening, he would, he would immediately be able to pick up on those numbers. And the interesting thing is, though, they'll use those numbers to try and boggle the minds of a creationist. But if you really look at the information, you'll find that if we gave all these machines all the time in the universe to re-duplicate themselves, and, of course, these machines required a uh, creator. Mm -hmm. The machines didn't come into being by themselves. We don't see complex systems coming from uh, uh, chaotic systems. Right. There is a difference between a machine that was created to do some function and something just randomly happening. Right. Like what an evolutionist would suggest about all of these slimes and lightning randomly happening. Yeah. Yeah. The probability is just astronomically uh, uh So let's impossible. break that down even uh, further. Now, this is an understatement. According to what I understand, the figures you're talking about are much higher than what I'm saying. But say if we had a billion machines that were created for the purpose of creating another machine just like them, if they work for 30 billion years, the probabilities of that happening would be like one-tenth, one-hundred, one-thousandth, the probabilities right. that we're talking about uh, this just randomly happening. The first, And this is only the first cell, is this correct? The first cell coming together right. and being formed in evolution. This is not even talking about a complete person or any kind of an animal. That's just one cell. That's just one cell. Praise God. And it's interesting, you see, uh, even by very conservative estimates by uh, evolutionists, that the chance you know, that these things could have occurred... Uh, it's infinitely beyond Burrell's single law of chance, or 10 to the 50th power, beyond which things don't occur. In other words, uh, statisticians will tell you that those things will not occur uh, beyond 10 to the uh, uh, 15th, or 50th power, pardon me, which makes evolution uh, virtually impossible. It could not have happened anywhere in the universe at any time. Let me just read something to you right here out of a Reader's Digest that I've got. This is a statement that they make in the opening of this article on evolution. It says, although evolution of life over a long period is disrupted by, or excuse me, is disputed by many believers in divine creation, including, according to one poll, about half the adult population in the United States, it says evidence gathered during the last two centuries from geology, paleontology, molecular biology, and many other scientific disciplines makes evolution a virtual certainty. Now, that right there is saying that, you know, well, there may be some religious fanatics that believe in creation, but all of the scientific ev uh, evidence proves that uh, evolution is a certainty. And that's just not so, is it, Bruce? That's absolutely right, Andrew. Um, in fact, if you know all of the evidence, 
that will supposedly support evolution and you know the evidences, the scientific evidences that would support creationism, it actually becomes uh, intellectually dishonest to continue to believe in evolution. Uh, Dr. Evan Schutt, he's a, uh, he wrote in the uh, medical journal The Summary, December 1969, page 2, said evolution will be a lost cause as soon as people hear all the evidence and not just the noise made by its proponents. And then uh, Dr. Marshall Hall uh, said this uh, in a, a book called God or Evolution, page 27. He said, evolution is scientifically impossible, and this is the fact that must be hammered home, especially to the intelligentsia. And so evolution is really an intellectually uh, debunked uh, belief, and yet it's being held forth by supposedly uh, members of the scientific community as being fact, when in fact it is not a fact. It has not been proven as a fact. It is nothing more than a, a, a theory. Well, Bruce, let me ask you this, then. This is a little bit off of some of the scientific data we've been talking about, but if that is really so, I'm sure that a lot of people have the question that if there's really that much evidence against it, why is it so advocated among intellectuals? Well, that's kind of a hard answer uh, to bring forth in just a few moments, but I would just say this. There is a worldview that we have among people in this uh, particular culture that we're in here that is uh, intellectual, uh, humanistic, that man is the center of his own universe, that man has uh, his own destiny to uh, fulfill in his own life. Uh, the Humanist Manifesto said, no deity can save us, we must save ourselves. Um, the basic problem is that man desires to be his own god. He desires to be the master of his own destiny, and he does not like to acknowledge the uh, idea that there may be some uh, being or creator out there who has superior intelligence and power above him that he may somehow have to answer to. And so the only alternative is to reject that and cling tenaciously to a uh, mechanistic, uh, you know, atheistic uh, view. Well, that's what I was getting at. I honestly believe that the reason there is such a driving force among so many people to believe in evolution, even when facts don't prove it. Now, we can say conclusively they don't prove it, and from our standpoint, they actually disprove it. And yet they still drive to believe in that, and I believe that the basic motivation behind it is just what you hit on, is that they desire to prove there is no God so that they will not be accountable for their actions. They can be like a dog, do whatever they want to, and when they die, that's it. They are just another progression of life that has evolved, and it takes away all responsibility, all moral obligation. There was a popular song that came out in the 1960s by Paul Simon, and one of the verses of that song said, A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And we, unfortunately, we find that those same biases are true in the scientific community. A Ph.D. behind the man's name does not make him an authority on things. Uh, he, whatever prejudices he had, religiously or morally, before he went to that college and got that degree, he will carry through that college and out into the world. And uh, the problem is, though, he'll be using uh, his education to uh, give credence to his own uh, prejudices. And, and the sad thing is that a lot of Christians have fallen for this, with anybody with a name or a, or a doctor tagged on their name, they put a lot of importance upon that. And they don't realize that those people are just like we are. I've got a brother-in-law that's a doctor that I love and respect, but you know what? I still have to weigh what he says. That does not mean that he's infallible and that he's gained all of this knowledge. 
Let me also say this, that a lot of the information that we're using, a lot of the facts that we're getting, they come from an Institute for Creation Research, which is uh, supported by, and I've got a statistic here, that there are 450 either doctors or Ph.D., people with Ph.D. degrees in the field of science who are contributing members to the to this Institute for Creation Research. And so these are a number of leading scientists, not only in the United States but around the world, that are now using scientific data to support uh, creationism rather than evolution. So what we're saying is that not all scientists, not all intellectuals, are for evolution. There's a growing number that are beginning to realize the facts are pointing towards a creation rather than towards evolution. Absolutely. In fact, there are some scientists who are uh, believers in some sort of a creation that are not believers necessarily in uh, the Christian God. Just because uh, of the facts that they've seen. Because of the facts that they've seen in their research. Uh, we touched on some of the things about the probability issues uh, uh, concerning evolution the other day. And uh, just maybe touching on that again a little bit, Andrew. Uh, the chance that spontaneous generation of life uh, could have come into being is so remote that really, uh, by the laws of probability, it never could have happened. Uh, even evolutionists that are conservative give it, uh, evolution only one chance in 10 to the thousandth power. Now, that is an infinitely high number. In fact, uh, Burrell, Dr. Burrell, uh, discovered a single law of chance in this probability issue as being 10 to the 50th power, beyond which things do not occur. Now, this is, this is accepted by the scientific community. Evolutionary scientists have called it 10 to the 15th power a virtual impossibility. Uh, Dr. J. A. Heinke uh, and J. Valley, in uh, a book called The Edge of Reality, published in 1975, brought forth the thing that an amoeba, and this is an interesting uh, uh, example, they used the idea that an amoeba could transport all the atoms one at a time in six hundred thousand trillion 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 universes the size of ours from one end of the universe to the other that's a distance of about 30 billion light years going at a traveling speed of one inch for every 15 billion years in other words as little amoeba carrying one atom at a time traveling one inch every 15 billion years that he could do that he could he could transport 100,000 trillion 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 universes the size of ours from one end of the universe to the other, one atom at a time, one inch every 15 billion years in only 10 to the 171st years. Hmm. Now, think about that a minute. There's, uh, there's at least 10 with 15 zeros behind it, atoms in a quarter teaspoon of water. And atoms are, you know, very, very small, of course. And, uh, and so the probability that even the conservative evolutionists, as I mentioned before, said that evolution could have occurred in 10 to the 1,000th power is is it's 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 intellectually dishonest <laughs> to continue to believe that wow. this thing could have occurred, and even the scientists themselves are saying this. Well, now, Bruce, let's go back. You said in one teaspoon of water, there's ten to the fifteenth zeros. There's ten to, ten and fifteen zeros <laughs> atoms in. Uh, All uh, right, now if you teaspoon. said if you said there was ten billion, that would only be what nine zeros? About nine zeros, yeah. And so this is fit. Anyway, that's a number that we don't even know what the name no, of it is. We can't. Even. And just to transport the atoms that are in a teaspoonful of water at the rate of one inch every 15 billion years. That would be an impossibility. But we're talking about, you said that 
He could tra go Transport. through that again. Some people may be the way I am on these <laughs> figures. <laughs> okay. Uh, the example that they used, uh, these scientists use, is that an amoeba, just one little teeny tiny amoeba, amoeba, could transport all the atoms in the universe, okay? One at a time, all the atoms that would be present, okay, let's be liberal, in 600,000 trillion, 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 trillion universes the size of ours. In other words, let's just magnify the universes. All right? And then say that they could move, that little amoeba could move uh, every uh, atom from one end of the universe to the other, a distance across our universe would be 30 billion light years. So let's give it 30 billion light years to do it. Going at a traveling speed of one inch every 15 billion years. Now, see, this is mind-boggling. Oh, that is. You think it's mind-boggling, boggling, but that would take that thing only one, or it would take it only 10 to the 171st power years. Now, that's infinitely smaller than 10 to the 1,000th power. And, of course... That's what the evolutionists are saying. They're saying, well, it could have happened then. Um, Aldous Huxley said one time that if you set a monkey down in front of a typewriter, given enough time, that uh, chimpanzee could type out all the works of Shakespeare. Now, let me verify. Huxley, he's a noted evolutionist. He's a noted right? evolutionist and one of the authors of the Humanist Manifesto. Okay. And uh, it's very interesting that he would make a statement like that, and supposedly, uh, seriously, he would seriously make a statement like that. Uh, you know, I wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> you know, Bruce, what I think of is that these people that play the games at Las Vegas and things like that, they're operating in numbers of maybe one chance out of ten or something like that, and they still come up losers. And sure. we're talking about numbers that are so infinitely higher than that. Well, their chances of winning at a roulette wheel are infinitely higher than evolution, you know, could have and ever so taken And so an place. evolutionist would make a terrible gambler. Oh, terrible gambler. <laughs> terrible mean, gambler. They'd bet on something that there wasn't a chance of anything happening. Well, the whole thing, as far as the question between whether or not creationism or evolutionism uh, is true, is it could be stated simply that if uh, you have two different uh, possibilities, and we would label them A or B, if you can disprove A, they would automatically prove B. Okay, and so if we uh, say that A and B are the only two possible uh, explanations for an event, and A is disproved, again, B has to be the answer. Evolution is impossible, and creation is the only thing that's left. Uh, if the chances of evolution occurring only one in the tenth to the one thousandth power, as we mentioned before, uh, then the chance of creation occurring is quite the opposite. The odds of creation. Now listen to this carefully. The odds of creation occurring is 99.9 .9 followed by 997 more nines. In other words, it's 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
and uh, conservative, even a conservative uh, estimate by evolutionists that we mentioned yesterday, uh, only gives evolution one chance in ten to the one thousandth power to have occurred. In and, other words, and that is an un. It's an unbelievably high number, and uh, Dr. Burrell's single law of chance states that uh, things do not occur beyond 10 to the 50th power, which is far, far smaller than 10 to the 1,000th thousandth power. I can hardly say it. All right, and so now let's break this down for the average person listening. This scientist, a mathematician, said that things cannot exist. It is mathematically impossible for anything to happen above 10 raised to the 50th power. That's right. The laws of probability say that things do not occur beyond that chance. And the mathematical probability of the first single cell in creation evolving is one is one or ten to the one thousandth power is that correct yes if you consider that there's approximately four hundred amino acids within the dna chain of a simplest one-celled animal and that those that dna chain had to be linked up perfectly you know, in uh, the evolutionists are telling us that, of course, life became uh, into the earth, or came into the earth, or uh, became into existence first in this primordial soup of of uh, chemicals and amino acids and so on and so forth that somehow worked their way around uh, into that perfect chain by random chance processes, and then uh, through an electrical discharge of some sort, uh, they became alive which uh, is a nice fantasy. It's really a nice fantasy if you like science fiction, but it doesn't occur in the real world. And this is the problem with the theory of evolution, is that uh, the postulates that they're putting forth and saying uh, occurred in evolution are really in the realm of fantasy. They have no basis in fact or scientific law. And yet the average layman doesn't have the uh, information to be able to combat these ideas. And Bruce, you know what I think of as you say that? I was thinking about uh, a lot of evolutionist intellectuals would sit there and discredit the Bible because they say things like a fish swallowing a man. <laughs> you know how impossible. And yet science has found that there are fish that can literally swallow a man. That might be rare, mm-hmm. but it is well, I mean well within the law of probability, and yet they choose to believe in something that is millions of millions of times beyond the realm of possibility. Absolutely. It's interesting to say here, too, that uh, as we mentioned yesterday and the day before, that uh, uh, again, evolutionists give uh, evolution one chance in 10 to the 1,000th power that all of these uh, chemicals could have come together and formed the first simple cell. And let me emphasize this again. This is the first cell. This is not the chance of evolution. The chance right. of, a evo- of a human being evolving into what we see today would be many, many millions of times greater than that. Absolutely. If you consider that uh, every red blood cell in your body has approximately 280 million molecules, and it would take 1,000 red blood cells to cover the period at the end of of a sentence, if you just made a little dot, uh, it would take at least 1,000 red blood cells to cover that period, then think of the number of the atoms in the entire uh, Earth, the Sun, the solar systems, the galaxies, and so on and so forth. And that comes out approximately to 10 to the 171st Power. Now that is the number of uh, of atoms considered in the entire universe. All right, that's totally insignificant compared to ten to the one thousandth power. Even if you uh, subtract ten to the one hundred seventy first power from ten to the one thousandth power, it doesn't even dent ten to the one thousandth power. So, the the laws of probability would, of course, just completely preclude the idea of evolution, and uh, it, it's 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 totally out of the question. You know, if a horse at a horse race had only one chance in 10 to the 1,000th power of placing first, how much money would you bet on it? That horse would have to be dead and probably buried for to reach those kind of 
not. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, why would you gamble your eternal destiny uh, or your convictions about reality on the basis of one chance in ten to the one thousandth power? Why would anybody uh, gamble their entire eternity on something as, as far-fetched as that? You know, Bruce, now this is just speculation, but I believe that I could be well within... Uh, the realm of correctness in saying this, that if you were to go back to that horse race and if you had all of the horses struck dead by lightning and only that one plug left, there the probability of that happening would be much, much greater than of the first cell being formed out of a suit by lightning striking it. Exactly, and, and to even think that that cell in an open system like that would even survive beyond a few seconds is uh, almost beyond comprehension right. because here all you've got is one cell in the entire universe that suddenly came into existence and uh, started living. How did you protect it? How was it fed? What did it eat? How was it? Uh, how did it replicate itself and duplicate itself? And then, uh, knowing how fragile life even is today, and how hard it is to keep even those cells alive in the laboratory uh, under artificial conditions, it, it seems almost beyond comprehension that that thing couldn't have even lived long enough to replicate itself. Well, let me ask you this question because I know that there's probably somebody thinking that didn't uh, scientists create life? in the laboratory. No, absolutely not. In fact, I have a very interesting uh, story behind that, and uh, maybe I'll bring it up tomorrow in tomorrow's broadcast, but there was a scientist who, who supposedly, and the media said he created life in the laboratory, but in fact he did not do so. All he did was trap some amino acids, which of course amino acids are floating around this room right now. Uh, uh, it was not life. It could not replicate itself. It could not uh, live. It wasn't alive. Well, let's give some definition to life. If you consider a few amino acids life, then he might have called it that, but it was not able to reproduce, which is one of the basic functions that for anything to be a living organism, it must reproduce. That's right. If you consider that even the DNA molecule that holds the genetic code for every uh, living species, no matter what it is, in their gene pool, that the uh, uh, a few amino acids in that chain certainly isn't going to replicate itself into uh, something exactly like itself. Uh, one cell is uh, so tremendously uh, complex that uh, it's beyond all comprehension how uh, just a few amino acids could ever be termed in the remotest idea as being life. Amen. You know, this whole deal about mathematics disproving evolution is really important to me because mathematics is a science. It's one of the recognized fields of science, and here is one field of science completely disproving another field of science, which really throws a doubt on the whole concept of evolution. Absolutely. From a scientific standpoint, this isn't uh, from religious people, but even mathematics would disprove it. Absolutely. Do you know some of the examples that I've heard, Bruce, are that if you were to have an explosion in a printing uh, uh, shop, that if this explosion happened and all of the letters flew together at just the right time and the papers flew together and the presses worked just right, that the probability of a Bible being printed perfectly without any error at all and being bound, covered, stacked, and delivered somewhere, it would be more probability to that happening than it would one cell being formed. Absolutely. Another example I heard was the probability of evolution or life uh, being created out of disorder, order out of, out of disorder, uh, is... Uh, be like saying a uh, a tornado would go through a junkyard and assemble perfectly a 747 jet. The probability of that happening is infinitely greater than uh, life evolving out of non-life dead material. Amen. I tell you, 
anybody that claims to believe in evolution. I'm not saying this as a slam, but they are really the ones who are not intellectual at all. They aren't using their head. It is a it is just an attempt to believe something, and as we discussed yesterday, I believe that the basis behind it is that they want to avoid the responsibility for their actions. So they just try and disprove a creator and prove that they are a product of just random uh, things that happen. But one of the things we dealt with last Friday, we talked about so many mathematical things, which math is one of the branches of science. It's considered a science. And according to math, math has conclusively proved that... Uh, Evolution is impossible. That the law of probability, which was established by, what was that fellow's name? Boyles. 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 He says that anything above 10 to the 50th power is totally incapable or impossible of happening. And the evolutionists, by their own reckoning, say that the first cell evolving, just one cell, this isn't talking about all creation, but just one cell evolving was 10 to the 1,000th power which is infinitely higher than the law of probability. So math has uh, proven that evolution is an impossibility. All right, one other thing we'd like to get into today is that another presupposition of evolution is that for it to work, it had to take millions and billions and billions of years for it to be plausible at all, and that's even with the remotest possibility. And that contradicts what the Bible has to say about uh, the age of the earth. And so there's some new scientific data today that is uh, challenging these old concepts of the age of the Earth. There's a lot of interesting information concerning the age of the Earth and the age of the universe. Uh, in order for evolution, Andrew, to be in any way remotely uh, possible, even by their liberal estimates, uh, it takes a vast, vast amount of time. Uh, again, Huxley once said that given enough time, anything can happen. But uh, we don't see in the scientific data that's available to us today uh, the vast amounts of time that are, are, are being pushed on us by the evolutionist as the age of the universe and the age of the Earth itself. In fact, uh, the latest evidence seems to indicate that the Earth is quite young and that the universe itself uh, really is not nearly as old as they say it is. Um, the figures that are usually thrown around is in the area of 4.5 to 5 billion years for the Earth and 30 billion years for the universe uh, itself, and that the universe itself, including the Earth, the solar system uh, that we uh, live in, uh, first began, and one of the main theories that's being put forth today is the Big Bang Theory, that there was a premoral egg someplace in uh, interstellar space that uh, blew up. You know, Bruce, something I've got to ask here is, even if they believe that, where did the premoral egg come from? Well, they never answered that. That's just uh, taken <laughs> for granted. Somewhere you're going to have to come up with some matter that was used to evolve into something else, and they never explain where the original matter came from. That's right. A lot of evolutionists take the standpoint of what they call a steady-state theory, and that is that matter is eternal, that matter always existed. Of course, that uh, has to take in quite a few uh, very prob uh, problematic suppositions that uh, matter always existed. Uh, but the the idea is is that the earth or the earth the universe itself all of the star clusters and the uh, uh, the nebulae began as a primordial egg that exploded at some point and flung hydrogen gases out across the universe. The idea then was that these hydrogen gases, through mutual attraction by gravitation, pulled themselves together and formed uh, stars and formed planetoids and and, and matter as we know it today. Uh, a problem with this, though, and Dr. Harold Slusher uh, 
who was an astrophysicist for a number of years at Kitt Peak Observatory as well as uh, at uh, the Institute for Creation Research presently, uh, did some calculations and found that the uh, gravitational force necessary to pull gaseous material together into matter would create a, a, a heat force by compression and that that heat force would then uh, form uh, an expansionary uh, force that would far exceed the gravitational force uh, available to ever pull it together. In other words, the universe could never have come together by known scientific laws today uh, to form matter. Right. Well, like one of the laws, let me break this down again for people like me, all right? One of the laws is that as you heat something, the molecules expand, right? That's right. Like, for instance, any gas, as you heat it, expands in volume. And, and when it contracts, when it cools down, it contracts. That's the reason you can take a tin container and heat it and then put a cap on it, and you can watch that tin can just be crushed by exactly. the atmospheric pressure because of the condensing of the molecules That's as it right. cools. That's right, and so these compressional forces necessary to pull gas into uh, rocks and and uh, matter as we understand it today uh, would have created tremendous heat forces, which would then have dispersed the gas back out into space, and so it could not have happened that way uh, by known scientific laws. Uh, the idea also is the uh, the age of the universe. In order for evolution to have taken place, they need a vast amount of age in order for it to have, to have happened in the first place. Uh, an interesting thing about the universe, if you begin to study astronomy, is the absence of what they call field galaxies as opposed to cluster galaxies. Uh, our Milky Way galaxy is in a cluster, and this cluster galaxy that we are uh, involved in is actually a very small cluster compared to some of the larger clusters that are uh, flung out across the universe. Um, we're a member of a cluster consisting of about 20 galaxies in all, and it's called the local group. Now, this local group is very small compared to the, most of the hundreds of cluster galaxies uh, so far observed and cataloged. Uh, an average cluster galaxy has about one or two hundred member galaxies within that clux cluster. And while the largest ones contain several thousand galaxies. Now, this is a tremendous uh, problem, and we're talking about vast quantities of space and time because our Milky Way galaxy, for instance, is 30 billion light, light years across. Uh, well, and the known universe, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I made a mistake there. The, the known universe is about 30 billion light years across. And. Uh, uh, what has been discovered is that these galaxies are flying apart at tremendous speeds. Some of them uh, average a uh, velocity of about 7,000 kilometers per second that they're actually flying apart in these clusters. Uh, if we start at ground zero, in other words, all of the matter within these cluster galaxies began all connected together by matter and then exploded, uh, their present positions from one another, given their present rate of expansion, uh, dates the universe at a very young age, actually in less than 100 million years, which is far less than four, uh, or rather, uh, 30 billion years. Mm -hmm. uh, to put it in just real clear terms, if the universe was even remotely, even remotely as old as the evolutionists try to tell us, there would be no cluster galaxies. They would all be field galaxies, and they would have flung apart and probably would not be seen in the known universe as we see it today. Uh, so evolution is not observable not observable. At that. Not observable. In fact, the uh, universe itself refutes the idea of an old universe. The universe uh, seems to show itself to be very, very young uh, by the uh, known laws of physics that we have today. Take, for example, the moon. 
when the astronauts were getting ready to land on the moon, there was a real concern that there would be these huge uh, beds of cosmic dust that the uh, spacecraft would uh, sink down into and the astronauts would get lost in this. They were, uh, uh, they were getting the idea that these... Uh, these uh, pits of lunar dust that the evolutionary scientists gave a lot of concern to really bothered the astronauts. In fact, one of the astronauts was asked, what were you most concerned about as you stepped off of the lunar lander? And he said, I was concerned about stepping off into one of these, uh, these dust bins and, you know, getting lost out there. Uh, the predictions uh, of a 4.5 billion year age of the moon and the rate of influx of cosmic dust from outer space, which is a known value, that there is a known amount of dust filtering down out of interstellar space onto the surface of the moon by uh, measurements. Um, the problem is, is that they only discovered between a half and what three quarters of an inch of dust all over the moon, which very conveniently uh, dated the moon at uh, far less than uh, 10,000 years. And, uh, of course, this kind of shows that evolutionary dogma uh, really uh, hinders scientific uh, discoveries and so forth. Um, so, you know, we see that uh, evolutionary ideas really hold back progress. It, uh, it hinders us. Uh, the lunar receiving laboratory that the astronauts had to be in uh, to isolate them in case they ran into some ev evolved life forms on the moon, of course, were ridiculous, and it cost billions of dollars to set this mm. thing up. And so it hinders scientific progress. Right. Well, it always hinders everybody that goes to <laughs> believing in those kind of things. Uh, do you have some of the information? I've got it in one of these little pamphlets here about Dr. Gish. It talks about all the places that he's been. We're just simply uh, giving this to let you know that although we're both preachers, uh, this information is now available to anybody. And what we are saying is uh, documented and it is accepted in the scientific community. Dr. Dwayne T. Gish, he has a Ph.D. in uh, biochemistry from the University of California at Berkeley. And he is the Associate Director of the Institute for Creation Research and Professor of Natural Science and Apologetics at the Christian Heritage College in San Diego, California. He spent 18 years in biochemical and biomedical research at the Upjohn Company and at Cornell University and Berkeley. So these are people who are credible and the information that we are presenting is scientific and uh, I believe that it's been a blessing to you. Now today, uh, Bruce, we want to get on to talking about the age of the earth. This is one of the suppositions that evolution is based upon is that there had to be literally billions of years involved for any of these one-celled organisms to evolve into some type of a higher life. Okay, there are several methods of dating the Earth that are known to scientists today. The one that we hear the most about, is, of course, is the carbon-14 dating methods and the fission tracking methods and the potassium-argon uh, dating methods that they use. Uh, the problem is with these uh, uh, atomic clocks, so to speak, uh, is that they are based upon the presupposition that evolution is true. Uh, in other words, any clock that you're going to use to date any particular span of time has to be preset at a reference date. Uh, the problem is they set these preset they, they preset their clocks, so to speak, at, at about five billion years, and of course their dates are not accurate. There's a lot of of uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, problems that we can bring up concerning uh, radiometric dating, but I just want to touch on very quickly here uh, the other methods that have been used in, in our scientific methods of dating the Earth to be quite a bit younger than the methods that are being used uh, in the, the radiometric dating. 
For instance, there's a scientist who did some research on the influx of magma from the Earth's mantle, and he did some research on this and found that the Earth was actually far in excess of less than 500 million years young. In other words, that's quite a bit less than 5 billion years if you compare 500 million years. But then even more, there's a, uh, a scientist who did some work on the cooling of the Earth. The Earth is cooling off at uh, a known rate. And so he went back and he started with uh, the idea that the Earth was molten and had cooled to its present uh, temperature. Uh, by using that method, he found that the Earth was just a little bit over 40 million years old. And then there are other methods that have been used recently. For instance, oil, oil well fluid pressures. Uh, in studying oil well fluid pressures, they found that the Earth was less than 100,000 years old, given that, that uh, formula. Uh, anywhere from 10,000 actually to 100,000. Uh, helium in the atmosphere. The amount of known helium in the atmosphere dates the Earth at between 10,000 and 100,000 years old. It's interesting too that, uh, getting back to the radiometric dating, one of the things about uranium-238 decaying into lead is that it gives off approximately eight atoms of helium. And in its half-life of what they consider to be 4.5 billion years, these eight atoms of helium uh, contribute to helium into the atmosphere of our planet. Uh, scientists are in general agreement that uh, helium is actually uh, possibly influxing into the atmosphere from outer space, that it's not just coming uh, from sources on the Earth, but could actually be coming from outer space. And so if we consider that to be a possibility, then if the, the, the known amount of, of, of uh, uranium-238 that's in the Earth today, uh, uh, measured out by scientists, that if that amount of, 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 of uh, uranium had given off on that known amount of helium in that 4.5 billion year half-life, then there should be anywhere from five to a hundred times more helium in our atmosphere than there is today. That actually helium uh, amounts in the atmosphere date the Earth at much less than a hundred thousand years. So what you're basically saying through that is that if that was an accurate, if their estimation was accurate, then the Earth would have as much as a hundred times as much hydrogen, which proves that that method of dating is incorrect. Absolutely. In fact, it's very interesting that using carbon-14 dating, uh, some scientists dated a living mollusk, and they tested it with carbon-14 and found it to be dead for 3,000 years. <laughs> That's pretty powerful. Yeah, that is pretty powerful. You know, Bruce, I also wanted to mention this. I mentioned this to Bruce before we came on the air, that the... Uh, Museum of Natural Science and History in Denver, Colorado. We take our kids up there and look around, and they've got all of these skeletal remains, or however you're supposed to say that, of all of these prehistoric animals. And uh, they've got two mammoths. Or one is a mastodon and one is a mammoth, I guess, to be more correct. Okay. And anyway, in this, they date those as being, you know, so many hundred million years ago. This is when this animal lived. And according to the evolutionist, man didn't even appear on the earth. I'm not sure the exact date. Do you know, Bruce? About one. Well, actually, they say it was less than 100 million years ago. All right. But anyway, the mastodons and all of these were supposed to be far uh, beyond that in the realm of uh, time. And yet they can't explain this. They just have this in very small print that they are really baffled over the fact that they found... Uh, 
arrowhead stuck in one of these mammoths in their skeletal remains when they dug it up, which completely blows their concept that they happened a hundred million years or something, see, before man arrived on the earth. And yet there again is another contradiction to the theory of evolution. There's tremendous contradictions to it. In fact, there was a lava flow recently in uh, Hawaii that was known to be less than 500 years old, dated by radiometric dating methods to be millions of years old. And so here again we see that the uh, radiometric dating uh, methods that are being pushed by uh, evolutionary scientists as being so accurate are really shot full of problems and cannot be used as a, an accurate method of dating. And yet that is a basis of so much of what the evolutionists claim. It's a smoke screen, basically. But, I mean, basically, when they find a skeletal uh, remain or something like that, they apply one of these forms of dating to it and verify that it had to be so many million years ago, so this must be one of the uh, first ancestors. Isn't that one of the big uh, things that they use? That's one of the things. When Richard Leakley discovered, for instance, uh, uh, Ramapithecus in uh, Africa and dated it so many millions of years old, uh, some of the same strata that came forth in that uh, find uh, was tested also uh, by uh, another scientist, and the material that they found the bones in by carbon-14 showed that material to be less than 10,000 years old. So which one is right? Mm -hmm. uh, the bones uh, predated the, the strata, and Dr. Whitelaw, a professor in nuclear engineering, claimed that uh, that strata that the bones were found in was less than 7,000 years. And so you see, the, a lot of this evidence isn't being made known to the general public. Uh, and yet there is tremendous amounts of scientific evidence that, that contradicts the presuppositions of the evolutionist. And so all of the laws of probability that we've talked about on previous programs about the mathematical impossibility of evolution, it just is increased that much, many more times when you look at the Earth as being less than 10,000 years old, which, by the way, I don't know if we've brought this out, which is what the Bible says, that it's less than 10,000 years since the fall of Adam. Now, it doesn't date the exact creation of the Earth, but since the fall of Adam, it's less than 10,000 years, which, again, uh, would verify and uh, support many of the things in the Bible. It's interesting that there was a, a scholar named Bishop Usher back in uh, the Middle Ages who dated the earth at 4004 B.C. In other words, the earth and man and creation began at 4004 B.C. Uh, and he used some very interesting methods of finding that figure. So uh, there is a lot of evidence that would really support a literal, biblical, divine creation by a benevolent creator. Amen. To talk about, we've been talking about the last couple of days about the age of the earth and how that uh, it's dated by the carbon-14 dating method, and I'm not even aware of all the other methods. You've mentioned a bunch of them. But that science has really come out and questioned a lot of these, and, and through some of the more... Uh, some of the newest methods of dating, they have actually come up with an age for the Earth that is 10,000 years or less, somewhere around there, which is very conformable to the biblical account, and also it completely would uh, disprove evolution because evolution has to have millions and billions of years for any evolution to be plausible at all. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. The uh, idea of, a, of an old universe and an old Earth is absolutely imperative to the evolutionists because otherwise evolution could never have taken place in the short spans of time that uh, a young earth would uh, would call for 
the interesting thing too is as we were talking yesterday about uh, uh, the ages of the of the Earth. One thing that I failed to mention was that uh, a scientist did some interesting studies on the, uh, the decay of the magnetic field of the Earth, and he found that the decay of the magnetic field is occurring on a, on a consistent basis; that it's decaying at a known rate. And so he went back and assumed uh, that the Earth uh, started out as a magnetic star, that it actually became a magnetic star at first, uh, which, of course, was physically impossible. And at the known rate of decay of the magnetic field of the Earth today, right now, starting from a magnetic star, would date the Earth at less than 10,000 years. At less than 10,000 years. Which would be very hard for an evolutionist to swallow. Absolutely, and very hard to refute, too, because of known physical laws That's that right. are in operation. You know, another thing that I have a question about is uh, that according to Darwin's origin of the species, and I guess probably a traditional view held among evolutionists, uh, one of the biggest tenets that they have is natural selection. That the reason things evolved was because one species had a defect or something, and or a mutation, and that this mutation was superior to the old breed, and so therefore it evolved upward. And one of the classic examples that they use is the long-necked giraffe, and they believe that they started with short-necked giraffes, and that the, they had a mutation, and that the longer ones were better able to adapt and eat leaves from the top of the trees. But, in, of course, we've already dealt with a lot of things that would uh, prove that wrong. But a question is, what would happen to the young giraffes that were born, you know, even with the long necks? I suppose the older giraffes must have fed them. <laughs> the idea is that, of course, the, uh, these chance random mutations did uh, improve the species. But the vast majority of mutations that do take place in the real world are damaging mutations. That very, very small numbers of those mutations are actually beneficial to the species. And so, the uh, again, the statistic uh, or the uh, probability uh, that any uh, given mutation would improve a species is, is almost as astronomical. Uh, actually, those mutations would have uh, killed the species, in fact. All right, and another thing that we've established, too, we've talked about how that different branches of science have come out and with their scientific knowledge have proven that evolution is an impossibility, such as mathematics. It's mathematically impossible. Another branch of science, the second law of thermodynamics, states, and this is my layman's terminology, that everything goes from a state of order to a state of decay. That's right. It does not evolve upward. Things are continually evolving downward. In the real world that we see around us today, we see that uh, as a truth in everything uh, that we see around us. Uh, a room left to itself goes from order to disorder. It becomes uh, broken down. Things wear out. Cars wear out. Clothes wear out. Bodies wear out. Um, the uh, first law of uh, thermodynamics, of course, is uh, conservation of energy. That something that has an amount of energy is losing energy at a given rate. The second law, of course, show, is shown almost in every instance that we look at. Everything is decaying. There's an entropy that's taking place not only in this world, but also in the universe itself. The universe is running down. The energy fields are weakening. Everything is going from order to disorder. And of course, this is consistent with the biblical account of creation in that God created things, set things in order, and uh, of course, I believe personally that at the fall of man, the second law of thermodynamics came into existence mm -hmm. because now uh, we see uh, that all of creation is, 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 is groaning in travail. It's bound uh, to the law of decay and death. And everywhere, every, everywhere we look, we see that law in operation. 
And so if evolution was really a fact, it should still be in operation, and it ought to be observable today. And Absolutely. Yet, the second law of thermodynamics, which is based simply on observation, is how they came up with it. By observation, the world is going from a state of order to a state of disorder instead of just the opposite, which is the supposition of evolution. One of the most indicting um, uh, evidences against evolution is the absolute... Uh, uh, absence of any transitional forms in the fossil record, that there are no transitional forms between a dog, say, and a fish. We don't see any half-fish, half-dogs. We don't see any uh, half-elephants, half-anything uh, else. And so uh, there's a new theory called punctuated equilibrium that's been put forth by Dr. Uh, uh, Gould at uh, Harvard University. He's a, uh, a scientist there and a teacher. And he basically came out in an article, I believe, in Newsweek a number of months ago, and then uh, more recently in articles in uh, uh, other publications that uh, uh, punctuated equilibrium explains the absence of the transitional uh, fossil record because of the, uh, the evolution, uh, this change that took place in each one of the species occurred rapidly, and that one species died out almost uh, instantly and another one came into existence. It's also called the hopeful monster theory. Uh, the idea being that one day a dinosaur laid an egg and a bird popped out. Uh, or, uh, you know, a fish uh, laid an egg and, uh, you know, a four-footed uh, uh, land animal popped out of it. Of course, we don't see this happening in the real world anywhere. And, and in fact, when there is a genetic mutation with an offspring, uh, animals will more often than not kill the, that offspring or they will die out by natural processes because they're not suited to the environment that their parents brought them into. So and Also, if I'm correct, every mutation or every kind of what you could call an uh, evolving of some type of species today is... Uh, it doesn't change from one species to another. It is just simply some kind of variation within the species. That's right. A dog is always a dog. A cat like is always a cat. For instance, you might have a, a different type of dog, like a Cocker Spaniel versus a different type of German Shepherd, but it's still a dog. Right. The and gene it conforms pool. to a dog. That's right. The gene pool remains the same. I just heard recently a story about a man who was breeding horses and actually bred a horse, a full-on horse that was less than three feet tall. And it looks exactly like a horse. Now, you can't say it's a different species. It is a, a horse. Uh, by uh, uh, manipulating the gene pool, we can get all kinds of genetic characteristics. But a dog, again, is always a dog. A frog is always a frog. A cat is always a cat. A human is always a human. Uh, there are definite barriers between genetic codes that cannot be crossed. You can't cross a monkey with a human being, thank God. Mm -hmm. Although now with uh, some of the newer uh, research done in genetic manipulation, uh, they're trying to do this. And I, I'm, uh, personally, I'm really concerned that you know, we're going to begin to see some very strange beings if, uh, if uh, they continue along this line. Um, but yeah. even if even if something like that was to happen, which again I'm very doubtful that it ever would, but again, see, it would be manipulated by an intelligent being. It's nothing left to chance. There That's is right. no evidence of anything happening by chance that ever evolves like that that change from one species to another. And the few examples that we have of one species actually crossbreeding into another species, for instance, between a horse and a donkey, uh, which makes a mule. The mule is sterile. The offspring cannot rep reproduce themselves as they are. They'll either, uh, th that, that one animal, that one offspring will die off and will not replicate itself. So again, here's another branch of science, the branch of genetics, proving that the DNA and the uh, information locked in there 
precludes evolution because it, it cannot change the way that it would have to to verify evolution. That's right. All, all genetic mutations are the result, almost exclusively, of damage to the DNA. And so, again, there's some more problems that evolution has. You know, the sad thing is that when you hear evolutionists present this, they don't tell you of any of the apparent contradictions. All they tell you about are their great ideas, but they don't really tell you all of the problems that That's facts right. have. That's right. Well, one of the things that uh, uh, evolutionists will often try to use to uh, put forth the theory of evolution, especially concerning the origins of man, is the supposed fossil remains of the ancestors of man. And, of course, uh, we have a lot of examples, and there's been a lot of names thrown around. I don't suppose there's one uh, child that's come up through the public school system that hasn't heard about Neanderthal man or Piltdown man. And uh, charts that are showing the man's supposed uh, ascension from lower primates and monkeys up into uh, the present day where we see Cro-Magnon man or modern man. A um, couple of neat things about this, though, is that uh, these discoveries are really a bunch of hoaxes. I'm, I just have to say it just clearly, just the way it is. Um, Piltdown man, for instance, turned out to be a deliberate hoax. Uh, it was accepted as an important link in man's history for many, many years, and yet it turned out to be a total, a total hoax by scientists. It is, it is now uh, generally accepted by uh, uh, paleontologists as being something of just a complete hoax. So even the evolutionists admit that that was a hoax. It was not a true finding. Right. In fact, it was very uh, embarrassing to the evolutionists when they discovered that Nebraska man, uh, one of the ancestors of uh, modern man, was formed deliberately as a hoax from the single tooth of a pig the single tooth of a pig and they you, you look at uh, uh, paintings and supposed drawings and so forth in uh, museums and natural history showing uh, Nebraska man uh, they, they form this entire creature out of, uh, out of a single tooth Neanderthal man, we always hear a lot about Neanderthal man but you know, uh, that was once thought to be an ancient stooped uh, uh, you know, progenitor of man uh, uh, and very much today, most scientists agree that he was very, very human. Isn't this the one that they said that it, he suffered from a severe case of arthritis? Yeah, arthritis or rickets. Where he got his stoop right. from. His, his primitive features uh, were caused by some disease. Uh, he walked uh, straight. And he would, you know, he'd easily fit in today, walking down the street of almost any state in, uh, in the Union or anywhere in the world. Uh, if you shaved him and put on uh, clothes uh, like we wear, no one would even notice mm -hmm. him. Australiopithecus is an interesting one, too. Uh, he's been thought of as one of our most ancient finds showing a connection between ape and man. But computer analysis has shown him to be distinctly an ape, and he has really no connection to man whatsoever. Uh, Richard Leakley one time had been known to say that uh, we should start all over again as the fossil story is so mixed up. Uh, there's a lot of differences of opinion about these different creatures uh, that have been discovered. And, of course, uh, there's, there's a lot of data that's missing on it. Uh, Peking man, for instance, was uh, supposedly 500,000 years old, but all evidence about him has been uh, uh, lost. Uh, so here we see again, over and over again, uh, the examples that uh, are put forth by the evolutionists are really uh, intellectually and scientifically devoid of real hard facts. And also, these, this progression of man from the ape in all of these different stages. This is one of the key, uh, it's foundation stone of evolution. It's got to be there to verify what they say. And yet, 
all of these things that they've supportedly used through the years to prove that, uh, probably over half of them have been proven to be hoax or either a misunderstanding of what they saw. It's interesting to see, too, that when these discoveries are made by, say, Richard Leakley in uh, uh, Africa and he finds a fossil, well, the media and, of course, the scientific community that's uh, uh, evolutionary uh, in its in its uh, biases will herald this and blow the trumpets and everyone will hear about it and it'll be newspaper articles and everything. But then when they suddenly start finding out that this thing was found in strata that was really very, very young uh, and, uh, you know, the the finding is debunked, you never hear about that. Mm-hmm. In other words, you only hear the side that they want you to hear. Uh, I don't think really it's it's uh, so much a, a, a conspiracy on the part of the evolutionists. I think these people are very often sincere individuals that are caught up in their uh, religious background. They just don't know better. I believe, yeah, there's a few out there that really know what they're doing, but I think for the most part, most evolutionists are evolutionists because they've been told to be evolutionists. And I, for one, I like to do my own thinking. I like to look at the evidence myself and make my own decisions. That's why I am a Christian, because I looked at all the evidence and I made my own decision on the basis of the information. And, you know, without trying to get into a political thing right here, this is a very good case for what many people are trying to get approved as law in the United States today, that uh, they are not trying to necessarily throw out the theory of evolution, but have it presented as only a theory and have creation presented as a second opinion. That's right. There is a a political move today, and really just on the basis of pure scientific interest, it ought to be presented. I was in on some Senate hearings with Senator Sam Zackham here in the state of Colorado a couple of years ago to get introduced into our, our, our state public education system, an equal treatment bill that would not put evolution outside of the classroom, but rather would put scientific creationism into the classroom. And uh, all we desired to do with that bill was not to have any kind of biblical references. We did not want biblical references in the classroom. We just wanted the data presented so that the children themselves could make their own decisions having all of the facts presented. And, of course, the American Civil Liberties Union and a number of uh, liberal clerics and so forth rose up against it and said, no way, we can't have this religious stuff in the, the classroom. Uh, all the time, though, not realizing that uh, evolution is a religious belief. You have to be religious about your belief in evolution because it's not based in science. It's based on a uh, worldview that takes in uh, the idea that man is somehow his own... Uh, makes his own destiny. Again, I'd like to just quote, I've mentioned this uh, last week, but I'd like to quote this guy again because this really amazed me. Dr. John Moore, he spoke at a annual session of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and he said about the theory that man evolved from amoeba and sea slime as an incredible religion, but not science. Now, that's a scientist who was talking about the theory of evolution, and he called it a religion. It takes a lot of faith to believe in that because there is no physical proof of it. Another thing that we haven't even mentioned, we'll just have to touch this and go on, but I've been to Glen Rose, Texas, where they have the Mm -hmm. footprints of the dinosaurs, and you read all of this information as you're there talking about how this happened 500 million years ago, Mm -hmm. and then right in the middle of a footprint, I've seen it, there is a footprint of a man 
that was made apparently at the same time, the same strata uncovered by the same stream, and they just don't have an explanation for that. The only explanation I ever heard uh, put forth by an evolutionist that uh, uh, you know they cling so hard to is that well, apparently, uh, what did he say? Uh, there was some sort of prehistoric dinosaur that had uh, footprints just like humans. <laughs> so what makes them not human? Well, of course, they've never found the fossils. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, they, it's amazing how they try and explain some of these things away. I tell you, I praise God that there are some scientists that have enough guts to stand up today and begin to counter some of these uh, notions that have been just accepted. It does take fact, courage. It really does. And there are there is a growing number of scientists today who are rejecting all of this theory of evolution. Bruce, today I'd like for you just uh, this is our last day to deal with this, and I'd like for you just to kind of sum it up, maybe fill in some of the areas we've just touched on and, and share with the people a uh, summary of the things we've talked about. Well, again, I'd like to say, uh, Andrew, and for the listening audience, that I'm not a scientist by education. I'm a minister. But the information that we've been sharing with you over these last two weeks has been uh, published. It's available to the public. You can receive it. Uh, in fact, I have a... Uh, uh, a, uh, an address here if you want further information on some of these subjects. Uh, you can write to Creation Life Publishers. That's P.O. Box 15666, San Diego, California, 892115. I want to touch, touch today as we summarize these subjects that we've touched on, and admittedly all we've been able to do is skip a rock over a vast, vast body of information. Uh, because it is such a vast body, there's so many other things that we could have gotten into, the, 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 geolo the geology of the earth, uh, homology, we could have touched on more in biology. But uh, I think today we really want to touch on this, and that is that the creation and the evidence that we have all around us today cries out for the acknowledgement of a benevolent, a loving creator, a designer who designed the complexity that we see around us in the natural world. For instance, if we just take our own world as an example, for instance, uh, the Earth's diameter is about 8,000 miles. Now, if the Earth's diameter was, was less than that, say 7,200 miles, and uh, that would lessen the atmospheric mantle, it would be reduced to snow and ice. If there was only a variation of 10% in the diameter of the Earth, uh, life as we know it on this planet would be absolutely impossible. It could not have happened and would not be sustainable as we see it today. If the average temperature of the Earth were raised only 2 or 3 degrees, you could say goodbye to all the cities of the Earth, or the major cities of the Earth along the uh, coastal areas, for the glaciers would melt and it would, it would flood uh, a huge areas of the Earth. Uh, if the Earth's axis, for instance, and this is really an interesting point, the Earth is tilted at an angle of 23 degrees from the perpendicular. Uh, this had to be the design of a creator because now we have four seasons, and in our plane of orbit it seems like the sun goes up in the summer and goes down in the winter on our horizon, uh, making those four seasons. Um, those seasons are important for the earth and its seasons and so forth. And so you see a designer in that. Uh, we live miraculously on this planet. Uh, we're protected, for instance, from the killer rays of the sun by a thin layer of ozone up in our atmosphere. How did that evolve? It didn't. It was created by a creator. If that little belt of ozone, which is approximately 40 miles up in the atmosphere, and only one-eighth of an inch thick if it was compressed, 
it would, if it were to, to drift off into space, all life on this planet would cease to exist. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, that all of creation in nature reveals that there's a creator, that there is a creator when we look at the creation. I think that the evidence that we see in the natural world today, as it says in the book of Romans, the creation shows forth the existence of the creator. And so don't let anyone intimidate you if you're studying the subject of creationism. Don't let anyone intimidate you about your lack of formal education in the area of creationism or the sciences. You go ahead and look up the information. You may not have a formal education, but there, that doesn't mean that you can't be educated. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.